had a little book was given to me, and every page spelled liberty. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. There is a tree in paradise, and the pilgrims call it the tree of life. All my trials, Lord, soon. It's too late, my friend. Too late, but never mind. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. So we are recording this very, very late at night. Um, Abraham, you want to explain why we're we're uh, recording this very late at night? <laughs> yeah, um, so I just I just came back from a volleyball tournament. Today was actually our, our championship game, and our team won. It's the third consecutive year that we won it. Dang! Like, congrats, dude. Yeah. So yeah, it lasted about three four weeks, and today was the final game. So. Thank you for for accommodating. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll make an exception for that. You know, no, that's cool, man. Um, that, that's cool, man. I remember those days. Yeah, hey, you, you had me on your team once, and then you never invited me back around. What's up with that? Nothing personal. But... <laughs> <laughs> not, not championship material. <laughs> nah, I'm messing around. So we are we are finally in our last episode of the season, and I'm and I'm super excited. This is once again this is our journey. This is genuinely what Pastor Todd and I went through, these passages, these questions, um, looking at the broader story, taking a closer look into specific passages. And I'm really excited to kind of finish this off. And I'm super happy, Aran, that you are also part of this journey, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So just to kind of remind our readers, last week we saw that we, we took a a big picture look at the New Testament. And we saw that nothing in the broader New Testament story prohibits women in ministry. On the contrary, we see examples like Priscilla, Achilla, and in Junia, people who are described as co-workers, people who are described as deacons, people who are actively in the ministry alongside big figures like Paul. So I just find that quite fascinating. So today, for our last episode, we are going to take a, a very close look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, because this is the only passage that even comes close to a direct or explicit prohibition of women teaching. This is the only passage that does that. Um, the reason, it, I, I really, trust me when I say that I, I took a lot of time thinking about whether we should go through passages in, in Titus or 1 Corinthians 11 about women being silent. Um, I realized that Pastor Todd and I actually made other episodes on passages, on those passages, namely in the, I think the series was called The Kingdom of God and Women. We made a few, a, a small series in that. So if you want to take a closer look at those passages, I encourage you to, to do that, to go back to those episodes. But today, 
I just want to look at First Timothy chapter two, verses twelve to fifteen, and show the complexities behind this text. But before we do that, around any any initial thoughts before we get right into it? Yeah, you know, first of all, I'm I'm just glad to have made it this far. You know, I appreciate you having included yeah. me in this project. Um, you know, I've enjoyed it. But yeah, regarding what we're gonna look at today, yeah, I was reading reading over it and. It's a tricky passage, you know, a bit of confusing language as well, but, you know, I'm excited to to tackle it today. Mm, exactly. So let, let me just quickly read the controversial verse, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And I'm reading from the ESV. Abraham, it's in the Bible, right? We could wrap it up right here, right here, right? That This is it. Episode over. It's clear. It's simple. It's straightforward. Let's go home, you know? But, but, but once again, like, is it? Is it direct? Is it clear? You know, um, my, well, I think it was, this is a, a famous saying, of course, but one of my, my hermeneutics professor, the professor that was teaching me how to, how to read the Bible better, he's like, what you need to read the Bible better is context 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 so guess what we're going to do context right so <laughs> you know on the surface this seems right like it's it's clear as day but i'm going to argue and i'm going to show you not by my my understanding my imagination i'm going to show you how the text itself shows how this passage is actually more complex than traditional interpretations of paul so l- l- let me ask you this how does Paul even get to the subject of women teaching? We have to understand that First Timothy was written for us, but not to us. Let me say that one more time. First Timothy was written for us, but not written to us. In other words, Paul is dealing with specific issues in the church of Ephesus, even before we get to verse 12, even we get to this even before we get to this seemingly, this this allegedly, this prohibition of women in, in, to teach authoritatively. And the three issues that he deals with even before he gets to verse 12 are these. The first one is heresy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he tells Timothy that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's important background. There are heretics. There is false teaching that is among the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and he's addressing that in this letter. Secondly, he's addressing angry men. Chapter 2, verse 8. Men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrel. Notice the specifics here. He, he Paul always talks about praying, but interestingly, he adds a different element to this. He says, hey, yeah, you should pray, but without anger or quarrel. Oh, He's addressing angry men. Thirdly, he's addressing women who are flaunting their wealth, using their dress and their outward appearance to either shame or to make some sort of status uh, statement with their attire. He says in chapter two, verse nine, women should not adorn themselves and should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, not with costly attire. And here's a general observation I've done. Although Paul addresses men and women separately, the principle applies to both, doesn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. think about it. Just because he addresses the men 
doesn't mean that the women, like, yeah, yeah, women, it's okay. You could lift your hands with anger, right? You could lift your hands in prayer with anger. It also doesn't mean that just because he's addressing the women here in verse chapter two, verse nine, does not mean that the men can flaunt their wealth, right? No. Paul's goal, I think, can be summarized in chapter two, verse two. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is the context. He is dealing with heresy, angry men, and women flaunting their wealth. So if Paul is dealing with specific issues in the church of Ephesus, why can't verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, that part, why can't that be a specific and unique issue that Paul is dealing with? So that's that's the question that I'm posing forward. So Abraham, what do you think about it? How does the context shape how we understand verses 12 to 15? Yeah, you know, uh, context is always important because you know, understanding what is going on in the conversation taking place, you know, between Paul and his audience obviously will, will help us um, understand what and why certain things are being said. And also when it comes to, you know, stripping passages of their context can lead to faulty interpretations and not fully or clearly understanding the story being shared. So like you said, it's always look, uh, sorry, it's always good to look at the context of, of what's going on um, in order to understand that better. Yeah, exactly. Abraham, let me tell you, something weird happens in verses 11 and 12. Ready ready for it? Mm-hmm. it? It may not sound like a big deal. Once again, when we read the Bible in English, it, these are good English translations. But once again, something weird happens. Paul goes from speaking in the plural to the singular. What I mean by that? Think about it. In verse 8, when he's addressing the angry men, he he that word men is in the plural. Men, many, right? He's speaking more than one. Don't don't lift your hands in prayer angry. Verse 9, when he's speaking to the women who flaunt their wealth, that's in the plural. Women, you should not do this. But there is a shift. He goes from speaking in the plural regarding men and women to now talking in the singular. When we get to verses 11 and 12, it's a woman, singular. A man, singular. A shift from the plural to the singular. Why the change? And here's the thing. Here's a question I'm going to pose, Abraham. Is it possible that Paul is addressing a specific married couple in the Ephesian church? Because, fun fact, that word woman or that word man in the Greek can also be translated as wife and husband. And before you think of me going a little bit too far, Osvaldo, you are stretching, you know, that, that's a stretch. Hey, I just want to let you know that even Martin Luther, who was not an, egal- an egalitarian by any stretch of the imagination, even Martin Luther translated and understood Paul speaking of a specific married couple in the church. Now, you know, now even if you disagree with Luther, some, some might say, well, the singular use of man and woman, like a man, a woman, you know, that's maybe Paul is using it here to be, is using it in a generic way. That Paul is using, using the singular on purpose to say that, you know, it's any man or any woman. This applies universally to the church. And here is where I want to push back a little bit. 
Because Paul is not a stranger to using these words in the singular. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that famous passage where this sex scandal, sorry, just we're going to PG-13, right, realm here. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when, when there's this sex scandal happening in the church of Corinth, he says something diff- uh, interesting. Look, look what it says. It says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. That same word is there, Abraham, in the singular. And we both know, and everyone knows, and no one debates that this is somehow something generic, something universal. No, he is addressing a specific person in Corinth that are, that are doing these things. So why can't the singular use of a woman that can also be translated as a wife and the singular use of a man, which can also be translated as a husband, why can't that be addressing a specific married couple in the church? Another fun fact around another another thought process, right? Paul has been using the plural so far, hasn't he? Right, uh, men don't do this. Don't don't lift your hands in anger. Uh, women don't flaunt your wealth. Plural. Why not continue that? Why shift to the singular? You know, that for me is 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 at least some points or at least points towards this potentially being Paul addressing a wife and a husband, a specific issue in the church of Ephesus instead of a general command for all women. So I don't know, but I want to hear your thoughts of this. Is is the change from the plural to the singular significant for you? Or is that just me? <laughs> yeah. Um, to be honest, I think it's a little tricky, right? Yeah. A little tricky. Uh, I, I'm following your argument. It makes a lot of sense. But like you said, also, there's there's another side to how people interpret this. So for me, it, it, it is a little tricky um, because there are times, I believe, where singular language can be used to address a general issue, you know, yeah. or an issue that applies to more people. So you don't always have to use general language to, to address issues that impact multiple people. Sure. Um, but, you know, just following, like you said, the context, I feel like that's important. What the, what the conversation between Paul and his audience, um, I think it is important to note that distinction or that change that happens. Um, and then also, you know, just thinking about how today this passage is used to submit all women, you know, to not teach or have authority over men when it uses the singular language for me, it's just not that black and white, you know? So for me, it just proves how, how, um, it, how difficult this passage can be mm-hmm. in interpreting. So I, I don't think it's too fair when, um, someone just comes up with like one interpretation for all. Yeah. So, uh, I do appreciate what we're doing, right? Looking at different angles, different aspects, because that's kind of what the passage is forcing us to do, you know? Exactly. And I'm glad you touched on that because I'm not pretending here. Like my, my, like, for example, I'm unapologetically an egalitarian. That's, that's not the point, but I'm also not saying that, you know, it's simple. It's easy. I'm just trying to provide, I'm just trying to provide some insight into the complexities of the passage. You could disagree with me, but I encourage the audience to see that this passage isn't black or white. I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, this was preached since I was a kid. It's clear, mm-hmm. it, clear as day, but I, I, we're kind of showing, uh, is it? 
there are some elements here that that show that maybe it's a little bit gray on some parts. So that's what I want to encourage my readers to hear. You can you can get to a different conclusions um, on, on on what I'm presenting forth, but I do want you to recognize that this is more complex than we realize. And and I think part of that complexity is this next part when Paul says, "I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over man." Even that's a weird phrase. Let me let me explain. Verse 12 is really weird to translate. Why? For those of you that are maybe have some basic knowledge about the Greek language, <laughs> the Greek language is really funny because their war, their word order is super loose. Okay? It's very loose. The subject can either can either be in the beginning of the sentence or can or, or it could be at the end. The verb can either be in the beginning of the sentence, in the middle, or the end. It's a very loose word order, which makes certain uh, certain passages like these very complex to translate. So just to give you some insight, I, w- I want to provide a, a literal translation of, of verse 12. Ready? Okay, it goes like this. To teach, however, a woman or wife, not I permit, nor authentain, domineer, Use authority over a man, right? It's weird. Why, why, why doesn't just Paul say, I don't allow a woman to teach? No, the teach comes first. So uh, to, to kind of show you where, where the complexities are, a few questions come up. Are there two prohibitions or one? And here's where I kind of disagree with Pastor Todd, right? Um, I'm going to explain that in a second. And that's the first question. Are there two prohibitions here or one? And then... Is the word authentane, the one that's usually translated as have authority over, what does that word actually mean? So regarding that first question, are there two prohibitions or one? Some have suggested um, two possible translations, right? Pastor Todd, this is Pastor Todd's translation. He would say, a woman or wife should not teach authoritatively over a man. Or over her husband. This is he's adopting a one prohibition approach. That that the word teaching and authoritative should be united. Teaching authoritatively over her husband. But then there's a second alternative because the Greek does have a, a a word that can also be translated as or or neither. This is the second translation. A woman or wife should not teach nor have authority over a man or a husband. So personally, and I don't think this 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 uh, disagreement with me and Pastor Todd is really any significant, but for me, the Greek seems to point towards two prohibitions, and we're going to see why that's important in a bit. But 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 let's let, let's kind of uh, put that aside for a bit. For me, let, let let's operate on the premise that there are two prohibitions. All right, let's put that to the side. Now let's address the second question. What does that word authentane mean? That word that is usually translated as exercise authority. Is it really that simple? Is it really that trans that 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 straightforward? And I'm gonna say no. For our audience, that word authentane is actually a rare word. Not only is it a rare word in the New Testament. It's a rare word in the ancient Greek world. There's actually very few manuscripts, very few evidence that we have of this word being used in ancient Greek literature, which brings up to this question, Abraham. Paul uses another word for authority, 
right? There's a more common word for authority. And he uses it all the time in regards to Jesus and regards to government. I mean, in regards to a bunch of other things. Why, why doesn't Paul use a more common word instead of this very rare word? That's just an observation. Secondly, is this word authentane a positive word? What I mean by that, for example, I'm sorry for those of you that hear that noise in the background. It's my cat going a little wild in the in the background. Abra, do you hear that? Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay. It's late at night. You know, it's Megan calls it the witching hour for our cat. <laughs> Anyways, that that word authentane is it is it a positive word? For example, Ran, in English, you know, when we when we say I have authority, right? That's not always a bad thing, right? There's more of a mm-hmm. positive connotation for for the word authority. But what about the word dominate? Right? Mm. I dominate this or that. that. That's slightly more, more negative. Um, so so, so the, I, I, I'm just giving you an example of how a word that has some similarity with each other, a word can be used either positively like authority or can also be used negatively. So, so, so in other words, how is Paul using this word authentic? Is he using it positively or, or negatively? And I think it's a little bit hard to, to say. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It's a little bit hard. How is he using this word? Because it is a rare word once again. But we have clues. And I think the one of the strongest clues that we have comes from a guy named Chrysostom. He, he was a church father. He was fluent in Greek. He was actually a native Greek speaker. And when he comments on Colossians 3.19, a different passage, he commented this. He wrote, that husbands should not domineer. He sh- they should not authentane their wives. He uses that same word that Paul uses. He uses it in his commentary and he uses it negatively. So, Abraham, is it possible that since Chrysostom, once again, a fluent Greek speaker, if he uses it negatively, if he understood that to have a negative connotation, is it possible that Paul here is using the word authentane negatively? If you pair that Abraham with that with the fact or with the with the alternative that Paul is addressing a specific married couple in the church, is it possible that Paul is addressing a wife that was domineering and bullying her husband? A practice that neither a man or a woman should do in general. So on on top of all that, Abraham, given the context that Paul is also addressing heresy and bad teaching. Like I just quoted, chapter 1, verse 3, when, when, when Paul tells Timothy that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And later on in the, in the epistle, he tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 3, that there are people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. So is it possible that this woman or this wife was teaching Heresy was teaching really bad theology and to the point that she was bullying her husband during public worship. Is that possible? I think it is. I think the translation, the language, the context does point that as an orthodox alternative to traditional readings of Paul. And it makes sense that Paul will tell this woman, don't teach. If he's addressing a specific marriage, hey, you're teaching really bad theology. You need to stop. You need to stop bullying your husband. You need to stop domineering your husband. And guess what? I think you should be silent. 
you need to learn good teaching. I don't. I know this is a lot of information, but what what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and like we mentioned earlier, it just shows you know that this passage is not as easy and clear to understand, you know, as some people wish to believe or say it is. Right, just having um, just looking at the original language and just all this complex language. Uh, and also, you know, I personally, you know, I'm not an expert in translating or interpreting these scriptures, but an observation that I would make is that if a rare word is used to address this issue, it could signify, right, that this is a unique situation mm. that's yeah. going on. Um, because, you know, general and common language is usually used to address things on a general level, uh, but specific language is usually used to address specific issues. And I know I'm being a little bit vague, um, but, you know, if, if you have details to a situation that's going on and you want to address it, obviously you can use more specific language. Yep. Um, and I believe that this could be the case here, you know, which is why he uses such a, a rare word. Mm. Exactly. So that, that that's our point, right? We're just saying, hey, there is an alternative. We're not forcing that alternative. We're just, hey, when you take a closer look here, you realize that it's not black or white as you think it is. That word exercise authority, is that positive or, or negative? You know, th these are just questions. It's a rare word. Paul uses the word authority, a different word for authority, more, well, significantly more times than authentain, the Greek word. So I'm, I'm just saying there are alternatives. So anyways, so this, this is where it gets even weirder for me, at least, <laughs> you know, because right after he gives this 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 prohibition for what i think is a specific marriage couple he references the adam and eve story but even here there there's complexities here it's funny um so what does he say he says for for adam was made first and then eve and immediately people are like you see this prohibition is grounded on the creation order but this is why we start right around this is why we start in genesis because I want people to get that big picture because when we, when you start in Genesis, you realize that, oh, wait, that story of Adam being made first and then Eve is actually not about hierarchy. What is it about, really? It's about mutual ruling. It's about Adam. He can't rule alone, nor, nor can Eve. In other words, they need each other significantly. They, they can't exist alone. They can't exist without each other. So I just want to give this perspective. If Paul is addressing a wife who is teaching really bad theology and even bullying her husband in public, during public worship, then referencing the Adam and Eve story actually makes a lot of sense. Why? Think about it for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, there was no bullying. There was no domineering. There was no bad theology. Instead, there was a mutual ruling of the created order. There was a healthy relationship between men and women. They were ruling. They needed each other, and they complemented each other very well in their strengths and in their weaknesses. So it makes sense that Paul will bring the Adam and Eve story to address this specific couple, especially if this woman was adopting a radical idea to the point of saying things like, I don't even need my husband, you know, or stuff like that. Then it makes sense that he would bring up the Adam and Eve story. Something else. Paul says, doesn't just bring up Adam was made first and then Eve. He also brings up this, the woman was deceived. 
That's hard, right? Why does Paul bring it up? Brothers and sisters, I have to, I have to remind you that that First Timothy was written for us, but not, was, but it was not written to us. We already saw that that phrase, the woman was deceived and not man. We already saw that this does not mean that all women are gullible or more susceptible to sin or not like that. I'm going to ask a question here. Is it possible that Paul is using the Adam and Eve story as an analogy to confront the wife directly? You know, if it's the wife that's in the wrong here, maybe he uses the story of Eve as a direct confrontation. Hey, you're acting just like Eve. Not because that's a general statement about women, but because maybe this particular wife was actually acting just like Eve, trying to deceive her husband with extremely bad theology. So, is it possible? I think it is. In the same way that Eve was deceived, this wife had been deceived by bad theology. It was now bullying her husband. So, Abraham, this is why we start in Genesis, you know, right? What do you think of and about this part? Yeah, you know, understanding the, the Genesis story on its own helps us better understand what Paul is trying to say. And like you said, if we address that, the Genesis story isn't trying to show hierarchy between Adam and Eve, and it's not trying to show that, you know, all women are gullible because of Eve, then we can safely assume that Paul is not alluding to the Genesis story with that intent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I'm really nervous about getting to this this weird part. This <laughs> next part is super weird because Paul says what I think is one of the weirdest verses in the New Testament. And I feel like our audience knows, right? And, and she will be saved through childbearing or birth or whatever. Man, that is one of the weirdest verses in the New Testament. But once again, if it's weird, if it's strange, I think personally that that points towards a, this is, Paul is addressing a very specific incident. And this is where it gets weird because we know Paul's theology. He's, he has written a lot. And it's weird. In in 1 Corinthians, Paul presents singleness as the ideal. And now he comes up saying this stuff, right? Oh, she will be saved through childbearing. Hear me out. This is where, where, where I, I push back against those who say this is such a clear teaching. It's straightforward. It's clear as they know because when we get to this part, that's when they, they're like, well, this is not literal. Right? Because if we took this literally, Abraham, what does that say? That Paul teaches in one place justification by faith, but for women, it's faith plus childbearing. Oh, oh, for, for men, it's by grace alone. But for women, there's a there's an element of works in this, right? No, that, that, that's utterly ridiculous. I don't think there's anyone that actually teaches that. If there is, I'm so sorry. But but no. Once again, even wherever you're you're, you're whatever side you're on this subject. It's not clear as day. And I think this particular part in Paul shows that she will be saved through childbearing. I thought we're saved by Jesus. I thought it's by justification, uh, by faith alone. I thought it's by grace alone. Once again, I think that this is an example of how clearly Paul is addressing a specific issue in the church of Ephesus. And I want to provide three possible interpretations of this part. That doesn't domesticate women. That doesn't put them in this place where, yeah, you're just baby factories, right? That's just terrible. Oh, my goodness. That is not at all what Paul is saying. So these are the three possible uh, interpretations of this passage. The first one being this, that Paul here is referencing Eve's childbearing. 
He's referencing Genesis 3.15, that, that one of Eve's children were one they crushed a serpent's head. So in essence, he's telling the, the women, hey, uh, trust in Jesus, right? Um, it, it, that is possible for me. It's not the strongest, but it is an alternative. That's one there. Uh, a second way to interpret this passage is that that word save in the book of Acts, especially that word save is also used for physical preservation. And as as some of you may know, and as women know now, that childbearing is a very difficult ordeal, especially in the ancient world where there was no modern medicine. It was you were dancing the line between life and death. And it's possible some people have taken this approach that that Paul is actually God through Paul is giving a special promise to the Ephesian woman that God will save her from the dangers of childbearing. That's a second alternative. But once again, for me, that's it, it is possible, but narratively, it's a little bit weak for me. The third interpretation is where I lean into. I don't wholeheartedly hold this, but I think it is a good alternative. I get a good interpretation. It's possible that this word save is not in reference to the future where, you know, God will save us from our sins or is not referencing to the past. But I think it has to do with sanctification. I want to take here a moment to kind of do some theology, right? There is a sense in which Jesus has saved us in the past sense, in the cross and in the resurrection. But there is also a sense in which we are being saved now. We are currently being saved. In what way? Well, think about it. That's our sanctification. God is freeing us from sin. He's confronting Satan and sin in our lives. He is saving us from this present evil world by reshaping our lives, our behaviors, our worldview, our imagination, our faith. That's part of the salvation process too, right? No way, in no way, shape, or form does it minimize our ultimate salvation, but the Bible does speak of this as a present type of salvation. Think about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul, the same author, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there is a sense in which we are presently being saved. So having that in mind, is it possible that when Paul says she will be saved through childbearing, is he speaking about sanctification? I think so. And now you may be asking, why in the world is this related to sanctification? And here's where I want to point you not only to 1 Timothy, but I want to point you to other places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You may remember, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, that there were some married couples that began abstaining from sex, that began abstaining from intimacy because of the very wrong reasons. They thought it was dirty. They thought, you know, that isn't a spiritual practice, probably a very low view of the body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul discourages that. He says, hey, don't adopt that unhealthy view of sex in marriage. Absolutely not. If you want to abstain for a time for prayer, do it. But don't let that be the norm. Because not because abstaining from sex doesn't make you more spiritual. Sex is not dirty. Sex is holy. Sex is good in its, in, in its appropriate context. So having that in mind, is it possible that Paul is addressing something similar here? Is it possible that Paul is discouraging the mindset from this woman, from this wife who has been spiritually misguiding in such a way that it's affecting her marriage? that he now gives her a specific and unique application 
of the Adam and Eve story. Uh, I'm sorry. He gives her a unique application using the Adam and Eve story as a great analogy. Is it possible that part of this married couple's sanctification requires developing a healthier and better understanding of sex in their marriage? Notice, Abraham, here's another observation that once again that I think points towards this being a specific issue. It says, she will be saved through childbearing. That's in the singular. If this applies to all women in all times, why not use the plural? They could have said, yeah, women will be saved through childbearing. But no, it's in the singular. She will be saved through childbearing. Avran, this is where it gets weirder. Because right after he says that, he switches black back to the plural. It says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So... So for me, it's a combination of all these points that, that points towards Paul addressing a specific marriage where the wife had adopted a false teaching, potentially abstaining from sex, even discouraging marriage. Like, hey, what's the point of marriage if I have Jesus, if I'm filled with the Spirit, a co-heir with Christ? And it began bullying her husband. And it seems here that it is possible that Paul is telling this specific married couple to rest in Jesus and not in false teaching, not in false pride, and stop fighting. I don't know, Brian. Isn't, isn't this passage pretty weird and difficult and not black or white, as people try to put it? Yes, very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, I just think we need to be honest with ourselves and admit, right, that this is a difficult, it's not as black and white or not as clear as many people take it to be, you know, and just because some of the language is familiar or easy, or easy to understand, that doesn't mean we're fully understanding or correctly interpreting these passages, right? So I, I would encourage, you know, our listeners and, you know, myself especially, you know, do our research, you know, seek wisdom from those who know more than us, who have studied these passages, you know, and, uh, with more depth. And, you know, continue learning also the story of the Bible, because that's going to help us uh, to address difficult passages better. Exactly. I really hope this was helpful for our audience. And if you if you want to take a deeper look into the subject, into this passage, I will post links if you want to look further into the subject. But, but I want to once again, I want to remind you, First Timothy was written for us, but not to us. Paul is addressing very specific issues. And it would seem strange that he goes from specific issues to like general statements. What do I mean by that? Think about it. The same way that the principles behind, you know, hey, don't lift up your hands angrily in the congregation. Hey, women, don't flaunt your, your wealth. All the, the principles behind these issues actually applies to both genders. Yeah, men nor women. Should, should worship angrily. They should seek re reconciliation as best as they can. Both men and women should not flaunt their wealth because we now exist in a community where status is not determined by wealth, but rather our status has everything to do with Jesus and the spirit that he has given us equally to all of us. So think about it. I think that the principles behind 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 apply to both genders. In marriage, in relationships between men and women, neither the wife, the woman, or the husband, or the man 
should seek to domineer or bully the other. Instead, like Adam and like Eve, like that ideal in the Garden of Eden, they should be partners in Jesus and navigating through this life with faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And what I hope you get to see is that, one, not only is this passage very complex, but I hope it gets to show you that it's not black or white. It's not black or white, as people put it. And if it's not black or white, and if it is true that this passage points more towards Paul addressing a specific couple in the church, what does that mean for women, Abraham? This is the best verse, Abraham. That this is the best and only verse that explicitly or allegedly explicitly prohibits women from marriage. Uh, sorry, from marriage, sorry, from, from ministry. <laughs> if that's the case, if this passage is actually not a general universal application for women, what does that mean for women in ministry? Mm -hmm. I think it's time for a reformation. Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's time for a reformation. We know that the church takes time to reconsider certain things. They're in the reformation. Hey, there was a, a second look onto justification, right? Hmm. During, um, during, uh, during slavery, right? Christians took a second hard look about previous justifications regarding slavery. We reconsidered that. Why not do the same thing here? Traditional interpretations of Paul do not re uh, require a second look. And I hope what people are able to see is that we were not importing our opinions. We weren't saying that Paul is wrong, Paul was not inspired, or that Paul messed up. We were just showing and hoping to show that the text provide the text itself provides an alternative interpretation. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that if you have any more questions, I hope that the links and the other resources that we put are helpful. Anyways, before we we, we conclude, Abraham, what are your final thoughts on, on all this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been a great journey being able to learn and discuss this topic. You know, and it's helped me a lot, you know, to, to view women better, you know, to esteem them higher. You know, and for me, you know, God's kingdom is, is beautiful. You know, he has included people of all nations, all cultures, all social classes and gender. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's, he's united all of these people. So, you know, it feels it feels weird, you know, to have people trying to divide us, you know, trying to put us in these, you know, different classes or whatever. But, you know, I hope that this miniseries, you know, helped our listeners, you know, see women through a better lens, you know, and the lens that we believe is Christ-like as well. Exactly. So, I don't know, this is a little bit bittersweet for me because this was actually the last subject that Pastor Todd and I went through, right? Like very deeply. Mm -hmm. and this was the last, the last subject we went through. So, I hope this was helpful. I, go, I hope you got some insight as to the thought process as to why Pastor Todd and I went egalitarian. Um, I'm super happy around that I'm able to share this journey with with you, right? Mm -hmm. And also happy that I'm able to share it with with the audience. And I hope this is helpful and insightful for you. So um, I, I I know we didn't answer every single question out there, but I hope I hope that this is that this started maybe your own journey. Once again, this is not meant to be an extensive an exhaustive look at Second Timothy, Paul's theology, the role of women in the church. But I hope this may be helpful. You may be starting your own journey. So with that, um, we're going to take a break for a month, hoping to return maybe um, November 10th. But I really want to thank you for all the love and support. And Abraham, thank you so much, man, for helping me wrap up this season. Thank you. All my trials, Lord, soon. Be over.
there is a tree in paradise And the pilgrims call it the tree of life Oh, my trials, Lord, soon be over But it's too late, my friend Religion were a thing that money could buy Then the rich would live and the poor would die All my trials, Lord, soon be over All my trials, Lord, soon